Thank you, Julie. Um, and thank you to CFRI, the organizers and all the sponsors, everyone who's really worked hard um, for a long time to put this uh, conference together. Um, it's great to be here with everyone and to be able to talk uh, science about CF. Um, Okay, just some disclosures. I think the one thing that is sort of relevant is I'm gonna talk about a compound called linaclotide, which AbbVie owns the rights to, and I have done some consulting for them, but not related to linaclotide. They did not fund the work I'm gonna present. They didn't uh, direct any of it. So um, there should be no conflicts there. I wanna start off and acknowledge the people that really have done the work. It's uh, really an amazing opportunity to uh, work with uh, people in science. And I think as, was, as we're doing today, really to get you know, around the room and talk about um, latest developments. So these are all the people that have contributed to the work that uh, I'm gonna talk about today. Um, the work I'm going to discuss really has been spearheaded by Dr. Jessica Sarthi, a research scientist in my lab. Um, and uh, so although I won't reference her on all the slides, she really has been um, really the mainstay for, for the work. Um, and of course, we couldn't do the work with all of our funding without all of our funding partners and CFRI and plays an important role in that. So thank you to you as well. So I think this audience doesn't need a lot of background about CF, but what I just wanna point out is that really over the last two decades, we have really seen a significant increase in life expectancy for those with CF. And so what this has created really is that now we have more adults with CF than children. Um, respiratory failure, unfortunately, still remains a primary cause of mortality and is a Gastroenterologists, you know, I always remember that as much as I preach about the importance of the GI system, uh, pulmonary disease still is what is um, by and far killing um, patients. Um, but digestive complications really are important contri contributors to the symptoms that individuals with CF face and even contributes to mortality. We've long known that CF mortality is associated with poor nutrition. This section, I apologize that you can't see it. I can't, well, that I can't control how it looks on the, on the monitor here. But really this is sort of actually newer data that it's looked at individuals over time and uh, the y-axis is survival probability and the x-axis is age. The dark line is those individuals with CF who have, are under nourished and the middle line is those have normal weight and then the other line are those that are overweight. And so what you can see hopefully very clearly is those individuals who are undernourished continue to have an increased mortality um, even then these days. There's a nice study done by the, uh, it's called the Galaxy Study um, that was done by the CF Foundation and, and this, you know, probed both children and adults um, about what types of gastrointestinal symptoms they may have. And while you probably can't read all of these things that are here, it goes through things like bloating, evacuation problems, abdominal pain, and the whole list. And what I want you to appreciate is that up to about 30% of individuals have moderate to severe symptoms um, when it comes to these GI complaints. And so that's a significant um, proportion of people. 
Well, why do so many people have GI uh, issues? Um, well, I think it's because CFTR is expressed in a whole different host of cells within the GI tract. So um, here was supposed to be our epithelium, but here we have uh, epithelial cells which expressed uh, the enterocytes that express CFTR as well as a bunch of other acid-base transporters. We have enteric neurons that also express CFTR. We also have smooth muscle cells that express CFTR. Right, And so all of these uh, have an interplay. And then even within the uh, enterocytes themselves, we know that different cell types express CFTR to differing degrees, right? So we're not just dealing with one cell type, um, but we're dealing with many cell types that have different functions. And when we look, and all this contributes to typical symptoms that we might see, such as decreased intraluminal pH, uh, which can impair pancreatic enzyme efficacy in micelle formation, which leads to um, digestion and absorption of nutrients. There can be ineffective mucus expansion and release. Um, when you have decreased intraluminal fluid, you can get compacted mucus and also bulky stool. You can, through the enteric nervous system and the smooth muscle um, deficits, you can get decreased neural stimulation of contractions in this hyperconstricted smooth muscle. And all of this can lead to gastroparesis, dysmotility, constipation, and incomplete evacuation, right? And so when you, know, you talk to people that have these GI symptoms, it's not just one of these things, it's often a multitude of these um, complex issues. And on top of that, we have microbiome disturbances, right? As if that wasn't uh, enough. So there are multiple studies now that have shown that if you compare the microbi intestinal microbiome of those without CF, it's very diverse and sort of rich. You take individuals with CF and you have very little, uh, you know, abundance of or different uh, of species you see here. And, um, and so the model that it really has been put forth is that you have not only these um, cell-based deficits in ion transport and contraction stimulation, but also inflammation that disrupts the, the microbiome. You have diet changes that alters the microbiome as well. And all of these uh, contribute to what has been termed a CF enteropathy. And um, also the state leads to decreased microbial-based nutrients, which can further affect your dysmotility um, because the microbiome is a rich source for um, agents that uh, these neurotransmitters that uh, stimulate motility. So I wanna spend a little bit of time on gastrointestinal pH and CF because as you'll see from uh, my talk that our lab, one of the main focuses of our lab is on bicarbonate secretion and acid-base regulation. It's been well established for more than 30 years that the small intestinal pH um, is lower in CF than healthy individuals. Uh, on the top, we have some data using tethered um, pH uh, um, catheters. So these are catheters placed right into the proximal small intestine and measuring the pH of, from individual, healthy individuals and those with CF. And what I just want to bring your attention to is right here is the transition zone from your stomach to your small intestine. And the job, of, one of the jobs of the small intestine is to neutralize that very acidic stomach acid. Okay. And so that happens in individuals, you have very low pH in the stomach, and it quickly rises as you go into the small intestine. 
in individuals with CF, it does rise, but then you see it falling, rising, falling, falling. And so it remains lower than this line, which is pH 5.5 uh, for quite a while. And why is that line important? Well, pH 5.5 is typically the pH we refer to as where ends, pancreatic enzymes will actually begin to work. Pancreatic enzymes like to work at a pH of seven to eight, ideally, um, but we want them above pH 5.5. The data below here was data from Daniel Gelfond, which he used what they call a smart pill, where it's actually instead of a tethered capsule, you, uh, catheter, you swallow this pill. It's uh, wireless, and as it goes through the GI tract, it measures pH um, and pressure and temperature. And so here in a healthy individual, you see, again, it goes from the stomach into the small intestine very rapidly. And in individuals with CF, you see this delayed neutralization. Okay. Well, we wondered, well, what about other segments of the gastrointestinal tract? This is just looking at the proximal small intestine and the duodenum. Um, so we went back to um, the data set that Daniel Gelfond had and together with uh, Doren Patel and Stacy Matthews at St. Louis University, we did similar analysis across the entire GI tract this time. And so here we have, let's say the stomach, the very first part of the small intestine, the middle part of the small intestine, the end of the small intestine, beginning of the colon, middle colon, and end of the colon right before this capsule leaves the body, okay? And in the clear bars, we have the values from healthy individuals. In the red, those that have uh, at least one G551D mutation and something else on the other allele. And then in the blue, those with F508 del homozygous. So if you just look at the clear bars for a second, the normal pattern is you should go from the stomach, increase, it sort of comes back down when you go into the colon and then it sort of increases again. This is a very typical um, pattern that we should see. But you can see at many of these stages in, in CF, not so much in the stomach, but in the proximal small intestine, and certainly then later on in the colon, then in individuals with CF, you have uh, greater acidity of, of the intestine there. So we've already talked about this a little bit today, but you know, in this era of CFTR modulators, I'm trying to think, well, do we really need CFTR modulators? Um, if you sort of pay attention to the popular press, you might think, no, you know, it's, they're, doing, they're wonderful. They're doing so many wonderful things for most of the people. Um, but I think those of us that uh, both see patients do this research and you know, talk to people in the community, we know the answer is yes. Um, so I'm just going to highlight a couple of reasons that we think about why we need them. Uh, one, we know CFTR modulators have variable effects on lung function, right? That's not just depending on which modulator you're talking about, but that is also even from clinical trial data uh, using the same modulator, different people have different levels of improvement. Unfortunately, in all of these clinical trials, there were really very limited GI endpoints. Um, we look at an IVACAFTER trial, you know, the kilograms and the others in BMI. And so that's all the data we have from clinical trials as to whether these drugs may be able to have an impact on um, GI health and CF. When we look at the PROMISE study uh, put up by the CF Foundation, they uh, have results from six months um, of Alexacaftor, Tezacaftor, Ivacaftor. And unfortunately, they found that there was no clinically important or significant difference in symptoms. 
um, in individuals on six months of ETI, and there was no significant change in the stool consistency or bowel movements. We don't really know why exactly that is. There's a lot of questions that remain from that, but I think it um, tells us that we still need to be continuing about continuing to think about more therapies, especially in the GI tract. So our lab has been very interested in targeting non-CFDR pathways for CF therapeutics. Um, Suram gave a nice overview um, already of some of our data as to um, why we think this is important, um, not just for um, individuals that may not respond to CFTR modulators or may have to abandon them because of side effects, but because there actually are a lot of individuals throughout the world that have um, mutations that would not qualify um, for them. And I think one of the important things to remember is that um, that these new therapies really are creating an increase in the health disparities that we see within our communities, right? And we need to be very vigilant about um, minimizing those disparities. So for the work that I'm gonna to talk to you about today, um, really started the studies that started to get me thinking about this was work that was done by some of my colleagues at UC San Diego um, many years ago, over 20 years ago. And what they did was they uh, took duodenal biopsies, so small intestinal biopsies from healthy individuals and individuals with CF and characterized the ion transport properties in them. And what they found, um, first off, that wasn't surprising is if you give a cyclic AMP stimulus in healthy individuals, you see a big increase in um, bicarbonate secretion, but you don't um, see much of an increase in CF individuals. Um, but when you look at, use the heat-stable enterotoxin of E. coli, which at the time was used primarily to increase intracellular cyclic GMP, you actually see similar responses between in healthy individuals and those with CF. So the question that came out of this was, how does STA stimulate normal amounts of bicarbonate secretion in CF, and could this mechanism be leveraged for the development of new therapies? So to tackle this question, we took a couple of different approaches. We started with uh, wild type or CFTR knockout mice. This is a global knockout. Um, and we use two different approaches. We use an in vivo approach where we uh, isolate the proximal small intestine before the common bile duct and collect the secretions from this uh, area and measure bicarbonate via back titration. We also do in vitro where we take the small intestinal tissue, remove the seromuscular layer from the, so we only have the mucosa and then we put this in oozing chambers to measure short circuit current and combine that with automated pH stat to measure bicarbonate secretion at the same time. And so what we found from this early uh, work was that in these mice in vivo, when you give forskolin, you see a really nice increase in duodenal bicarbonate secretion. And when you remove that forskolin, it starts to come back down. But in CFDR knockout animals, you see no response. This was not surprising. We knew that forskolin stimulated uh, um, CFDR currents, um, were, or the currents were dependent on CFDR. Oops. But um, what we were surprised to see uh, was that when you give STA in a wild type mice, again, you see an increase in bicar duodenal bicarbonate secretion. But here in CFTR knockout mice, you also see an increase then of similar magnitude as, as wild types, which is very exciting to really show this that you don't need functional, you don't need CFTR expression or function for this pathway. 
We repeated these studies uh, in vitro in our using chambers. And here you see in control that uh, the black bars are baseline, the clear bars are with STA stimulation, that you get increase in bicarbonate secretion in both wild type and CFTR knockout mice. And then we went in thinking about how this might occur, we removed chloride from the bath um, to see if this was a chloride dependent phenomenon. Um, and the reason we did this, and I'm gonna talk more about this, is that some of the other acid-based transporters, specifically bicarbonate transporters, uh, require chloride to work. And these are what we call chloride bicarbonate exchangers. And so when we do that in our wild type mice, you continue to see an increase in bicarbonate secretion because CFTR does not need chloride there to conduct bicarbonate. However, in our CFTR knockout mice, now STA is unable to stimulate duodenal bicarbonate secretion, meaning it requires chloride. And on this data suggested that in CFTR knockout mice, STA was able to increase duodenal bicarbonate secretion through uh, chloride bicarbonate exchangers. So fast forward a few years down the road and we got um, interested in this uh, compound linaclotide, which uh, at the time had been FDA approved for irritable bowel syndrome constipation. And why we got interested in that, and sorry, this has shifted a little bit, is that if you look at the amino acid sequence of STA and you compare that to linaclotide, they're almost identical. And in fact, the whole purpose for generating linaclotide was to make STA variants. Um, both have three disulfide bonds and very similar structures. So we set out on a series of experiments to see if linaclotide also increased bicarbonate secretion and to understand the mechanism whereby it may do so. So we went back to our in vivo model and uh, here we gave differing doses of linaclotide and found that as you increase the dose at 10 to the minus seven and 10 to the minus five molar, you get an increase in duodenal bicarbonate secretion, um, a magnitude that was similar to STA. Um, and then we wondered, well, can this process occur independent of CFTR? So we repeated these experiments now in the presence of a selective CFTR inhibitor, CFTR INH172. And again, sorry, maybe you can't see it here in the room. This dotted line are the experiments that are done without CFTR inhibitor. And the dark circles are those in the presence of CFTR inhibitor. I'll tell you, they overlap. They look exactly the same. Okay. So um, then to prove this further to ourselves, we uh, looked at wild type mice and CFTR knockout mice again. And what you see here in vitro is that linaclotide increases duodenal bicarbonate secretion in vitro, and it increased, it does so in a way that increases short circuit current. So we call that electrogenic bicarbonate secretion. Um, however, when we looked at the CFTR knockout mice, we see equal magnitudes of bicarbonate secretion, but here no change in the short circuit current. And then we call that electroneutral bicarbonate secretion. So what we're able to see in the CFTR knockout mouse is that we can get bicarbonate secretion, but it happens with no change in the short circuit current. And this is also supportive of the involvement of chloride bicarbonate exchangers because typically what happens is you are exchanging one anion for another anion. And so it's electrically silent in the oozing chamber um, or the, the voltage clamp system. We wanted to see, does this phenomenon also occur in humans? So we took uh, human duodenal biopsies. Um, these are all from healthy individuals with no CF or duodenal disease. 
and uh, we measured uh, their responses to linaclotide. And you can see that in duodenal biopsies, you also see an increase in linaclotide-stimulated duodenal bicarbonate secretion. Um, in contrast to mice, we see very little change in the short circuit current. So it looks like in humans may involve a little bit more of an electroneutral process than an electrogenic process. Um, and then um, because at the time we didn't have any uh, CF tissues to, to use, we uh, did these studies with and without CFTR inhibitor. And again, you can see that when you have CFTR inhibitor present, it, you continue to get bicarbonate secretion in response to linaclotide, um, and there's no change in the short circuit current, which not much existed um, to begin with. Um, so what we've been able to show both in mice and humans is that linaclotide, just like STA, is able to stimulate duodenal bicarbonate secretion in both individuals without CF, but importantly in individuals with, with CF, with data to um, suggest that it's utilizing chloride bicarbonate exchangers. And while we were excited about our initial STA studies, we were even more excited about our linaclotide studies because that's already an FDA-approved drug, right? But we wondered, well, how does linaclotide stimulate CFTR-independent bicarbonate secretion? And so we repeated some of the in vivo studies now using some different inhibitors. So first off, these experiments all have linaclotide exposure. They're all done in the presence of a CFTR inhibitor. So we're only looking at CFTR-independent bicarbonate secretion. And I'm showing data for either in the presence of a selective inhibitor of one type of chloride bicarbonate exchanger, DRA or SLC26A3, and then another inhibitor, which is not so selective, um, DIDS, um, but in this um, instance, how we've used it seems to be maybe more um, specific for PAT1 or SLC26A6. And what you can hopefully easily appreciate here is that um, really only the DRA inhibitor abolished the um, CFTR-independent bicarbonate secretion in response to linaclotide. And that's shown in the time course here with the dotted line, our CFTR inhibitor in our, our circles with CFTR inhibitor plus the DRA inhibitor. Okay, so this uh, made us think that really maybe DRA is the chloride bicarbonate exchanger responsible for the CFTR-independent response. So, but we also wanted to see, you know, there are many ways in which you can alter the activities of these um, channels and transporters. Um, one is you can activate them that are already at the membrane. The other way is you can traffic more of them to the membrane. Okay. So we wanted to look at DRA trafficking. And, um, and so we used, uh, we generated uh, duodenal enteroids. Um, but we used a different technique than most people um, at the time were using. So most of the enteroid or organoid data you'll see is what we call basal out, where the apical side is on the inside, and here's your lumen. So if anyone's seen those swelling assays, the reason they get bigger is because fluid goes into this lumen and they get bigger. But the receptor for linaclotide or STA, guanylocyclase C, is on the apical membrane. Okay, so if we were to use this model, we would have to inject those compounds into the lumen. So, but leveraging a technique developed by uh, Manuel Amieva's lab at Stanford, um, you can remove the extracellular matrix and reverse that polarity. So now you have apical out enteroids. So we have access to the apical surface. 
Um, and in the staining, which maybe you can see on Zoom better than we can see in the room, is the red is actually the apical membrane. So it's inside here and outside there. Um, and so we use these apical out enteroids. And in th this instance, we've uh, differentiated them for three days to make them more villus-like. And um, we can have control conditions where there's no water control and then linaclotide stimulation, which you can hopefully appreciate is this green is DRA staining is as in these apical enteroids, there is um, a bunch of DRA expression, but there's actually very little that's at the apical membrane at baseline. However, when we give linaclotide, we see much more that goes to the membrane and that's quantified here. So it seems like linaclotide is not only activating DRI, but it's actually pushing more of it to the membrane as well. So we looked at, well, what happens to DRA when we have loss of CFTR function? Whoa, that's PowerPoint, loss of PowerPoint function. Um, or loss of CFTR expression in F508 del homozygous tissue. And so what we see with CFTR inhibitors, you get more DRA at the membrane. Um, with linaclotide, you actually don't get further um, DRA at the membrane, um, but with an CF, um, you get, you have more DRA at the membrane at baseline, actually, and then linaclotide stimulates um, even more DRA. Um, we wondered, well, why don't we see more DRA at the membrane here? And when we looked at the, uh, these are all normalized data, but when we looked at the actual um, mean fluorescence intensities, it seems like we may be already at sort of the peak threshold there. So we may be not be able to put more DR on the membrane because we already have achieved a lot here with just CFTR inhibition. So we've been able to show you that linaclotide increases duodenal bicarbonate secretion. It does so independently of CFTR. It also increases DRA at the membrane um, to accomplish this, but we wondered, well, how does linaclotide get DRA to the membrane? Typically, when we think about linaclotide or STA's uh, activities, we think, it, like I said, it utilizes this guanylocyclase C receptor that increases cyclic GMP and can alter cyclic AMP levels and prostaglandins to do that. But the main effects are thought to be on CFTR and in, in increasing CFTR um, function and decreasing NHE3 function. And now we've added DRA to that list. Um, well, when we did our initial studies in CFTR knockout mice, we actually also had done studies giving them a cell permeable analog of cyclic GMP, abromocyclic GMP, which normally stimulates very robust bicarbonate secretion but in CFTR knockout mice, you don't see an increase in bicarbonate secretion. So we felt that in CFTR knockout mice, maybe you're utilizing a different intracellular signaling pathway to accomplish the uh, DRA effects. Um, when we go back and look at the literature, it's actually been shown that STA can increase uh, IP3 and intracellular calcium. This is IP3 in the back here increasing uh, within 90 seconds. And when you measure intracellular calcium and you give STA here, you can see an increase in the intracellular calcium pools, um, despite everyone thinking about cyclic GMP as the main mechanism. In our lab, we've also been able to show that when you give linaclotide and um, duodenal enteroids, 
you can see an increase in intracellular calcium, and this is with carbocol, sort of a similar, similar magnitude as carbocol, although their dynamics are differently. And then in vivo, again, when we do these experiments where we have CFTR inhibitor present and linaclotide to look at CFTR independent bicarbonate secretion, when we give an inhibitor of PLC here, we can totally abolish that response. So we started to think about, okay, calcium may be involved, phospholipase C may be involved. And that got us thinking about this protein, Erbit. So Erbit is a shorter name for a much longer name. I'm not going to say that all the time here. And Julie's probably happy that I didn't make her say that. Um, and this is the gene name, ACHYL. Well, Erbit really is a hub protein. It's involved in many different things, has many interacting partners. But what I'm going to talk about today is really about its um, involvement and its potential to move um, ion channels to the membrane. And it's thought to do that in one way is that you can activate phospholipase C, generate IP3, and normally Erbit is bound to the IP3 receptor. But as soon as you get more IP3 and it binds to the IP3 receptor, it displaces Erbit, and then Erbit now shuttles things to the membrane. Okay. And this has been shown to occur in the pancreatic um, duct, and, but in the duodenum, there was no data on this. So our hypothesis was essentially that in, um, in CF tissues, when you have linaclotide or STA, that this is what's happening. You're increasing IP3 generation, displacing Erbit, and that's trafficking DRA to the membrane. So first we looked at Erbit expression and localization in human duodenum. And uh, what we find is that in duodenal biopsies, you have uh, quite a bit of herbit expression, um, even compared to other cellings like CalU3 or HEC cells. And here's a duodenal biopsy with red being herbit. You can see pretty robust expression. It seems a little bit more in the, in the villus region than in the, in the crypts here. When you look at single cell RNA sequencing data, um, we see uh, a lot of cells expressed uh, Erbit, especially in the enterocytes. And interesting to, to us, when we looked at SLC26A3 or DRA, it has, seems to have maybe a similar expression pattern. Um, and in fact, when we look at villus cells, specifically from single cell RNA sequencing data and look at co-expression of DRA and Erbit mRNA, we see about 40% of cells um, co-express both. When we look at duodenal enteroids, uh, we can see looking at RNA, and this time it's in undifferentiated crypt-like enteroids all the way to more fully differentiated villus-like enteroids. We can see that DRA, we know, increases in ex expression as you come up the, the villi. Erbit also seems to uh, increase it more in, in this villus region. We see that in basal out enteroids and also apical out enteroids as well. And when we look at a protein level via Western blot, we also see more Erbit in differentiated enteroids, which sort of seems to fit with the, uh, the biopsy data that we have. So going back to similar studies that I showed you with DRA trafficking, um, we looked at Erbit expression. Now um, Erbit is in red and under controlled non-stimulated conditions, we see Erbit throughout the uh, cells. Um, these are many cells within a single enteroid. Um, and then when we give linaclotide, we can see more Erbit is now at the apical pole. And when you zoom in in some of these regions, the yellow is where Erbit and villain, which is marking the apical surface, um, 
you know, are co-localizing, meaning there's more herbit there actually in the membrane. And when we quantify, we can see more herbit at the membrane when we give linaclotide. So what we've seen is that linaclotide can increase DRA at the membrane and linaclotide can increase herbit at the membrane, but do they do it together or is it just purely an association? So we've begun to do uh, some of these experiments to look at this more, and this is preliminary data. So we'd started with co-immunoprecipitation. And when you uh, IP with DRA and then look at uh, immunoblot with Erbit, you can uh, see it. And likewise, when you immunoprecipitate with Erbit and immunoblot with DRA, you also can see it. Meaning that within the cell at a protein level, they seem to be interacting to some degree. Um, when we look at immunofluorescence, this is now a duodenal biopsy in whole mount mode. It's just a section through it. Um, and again, sort of green here is DRA, red is Erbit, and the yellow is where they're co-localizing. Uh, we do see areas that they seem to be co-localizing and predominantly there at the um, membrane. So we then went to do some of these experiments where we gave a PLC inhibitor, the same one I showed you before that inhibited the bicarbonate secretion. And when we look at DRA trafficking to the membrane, these are all now with linaclotide stimulation here. Um, without a PLC inhibitor, you get a lot of DRA at the membrane. You give the D PLC inhibitor, you no longer get DRA at the membrane, okay? Um, interestingly, I'd also shown you that CFTR inhibitor alone increases DRA at the membrane. Um, and when you give PLC inhibitor, that also decreases that. So it does appear that PLC seems to have a role in moving DRA to the membrane. Now, when we look at Erbit, we did not expect to see this, but so far we see that there's no difference in uh, whether you have PLC active or not. Erbit um, still remains actually there at the membrane. Um, and we haven't done experiments yet in CF on them. So um, just quickly here to get more information on this, we're using CRISPR-Cas9 to generate Erbit knockout um, enteroids. And so our preliminary data shows that we can achieve very high uh, um, indels, 100%, and uh, disruption here with uh, using this multi-guide um, targeting of exon 3. So we're characterizing these right now to see if we actually get knockdown of protein. Um, and so what uh, hopefully I've convinced you of is that we have shown that STA and linaclotide can stimulate CFTR independent bicarbonate secretion through um, DRA trafficking and activation. And this appears to be PLC dependent. Linaclotide also increases Erbit membrane expression. However, this may not be PLC dependent. And we're looking into this other mechanism whereby Erbit through interactions with CAM kinase 2 may also be able to translocate proteins. Um, so we have a number of next steps that we're looking at. We're gonna look at IP3 generation, look at more into what's going on with Erbit trafficking and CF enteroids. Um, also, like I said, look into the involvement of CAM kinase 2 in this pathway. And uh, we're very excited to look at to see um, what happens in our Erbit knockout enteroids because there is no actual pharmacological inhibitor of Erbit itself. Um, and then we're also interested in how Erbit may also be affecting other acid-based transporters like CFTR, NHE3, and PAT1.
Thank you.